by Charlotte. (laughs) Please join me in your Bibles in the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. As we're moving through this gospel, it's so interesting just the the amount of information that can be packed into just a couple verses, even a couple words. And our passage this morning is going to be John chapter 5, verses 17 through 23. And I ask that you have your Bibles ready and, and open so that you're not just taking my word for it. I do not want you just to say, oh, he said some things. I'm going to believe it. I want you to see it for yourselves in the word of the living God. So Jesus makes the claim to be God in our passage this morning. This is a a, a key passage for the deity of Christ. So there was a 2022 poll done by Ligonier, and 43% of self-professed evangelicals claimed that Jesus was a good teacher but not God. 43%. So if you are in this room, I pray that you settle this question today. Is Jesus God in human flesh? So our passage is going to make it clear, but I really want you to think through this because if 43% think that Jesus is only a good teacher, that tells me that 43% are not believers. They do not know who Jesus is, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So, starting in verse 17, it says, Jesus responded to them, My Father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than than these, so that you will be amazed." And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom He wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Let's pray this morning for the Word. Father, we pray that this word would come and penetrate our hearts, that that we would see the wonderful things that you have given us in your word. Lord, if there's anyone who does not know Jesus in the, in the, in, in, that can hear these words, that they would settle this in their heart this morning, that they would see Jesus as God, that we would see your dear son as who you say he is, who he says he is, that we would trust fully in what your word teaches us this morning, and that we would, re- we would rest on this reality, that it would impact how we live our lives. Father, this is no mere speculative doctrine, but it is truly practical. It determines how we live for the, for the rest of our eternity. And we ask these things in your precious name and by your powerful spirit. Uh, Lord, I also want to lift up uh, Summit Baptist and Pastor David Carnes, who's in recovery from his heart surgery. I pray that 
his recovery would continue smoothly and that he would continue to uh, improve as well. And Lord, that he wouldn't have to have any more surgery. And I pray for his church that it would continue to honor you and, and be a gospel witness to the community. And we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. So in our passage, Jesus is making a very startling claim. He says he is God. And this comes directly after Jesus heals the lame man on the Sabbath. So if, you, if you're following the book of John with us, what you'll notice is that there is a, um, a point of impact and then the repercussions of that impact. And the repercussions are the teaching that Jesus is trying to talk to you about himself. So the first thing he does is he heals this lame man. He goes into the, the house of, of mercy, Bethesda. He goes in there, he heals this lame man, and the lame man stands up, he's healed, but it's on the Sabbath day. And if you know anything about the Sabbath, this is important for the Jews. They're, they're very strict in their keeping of the Sabbath. And it sparks the Jewish leadership to move from a place of just of persecution to even something greater. They want to not only persecute him now, they want to kill him. Uh, so Jesus is becoming a bigger and bigger target for the Jewish leadership. And he's considered a blasphemer, something greater than a Sabbath breaker. So a Sabbath breaking, you're going to get probably beat up a little bit, possibly have some, some repercussions, but a blasphemer at that time would be killed, would be executed. And so they're starting to consider him a blasphemer. And, and this leads them to this, this response. So he is going to respond to us, or respond to the Sabbath healing. And as he's responding, he drops in something kind of important. He claims to be God. And his response to criticism is with authority, with details, and with judgment. So Jesus responds first with authority. In verses 17 through 18, we have Jesus giving almost a legal defense. Look at verse 17 with me. Jesus responded to them. Now this, the, in the Greek, it's a lot more clear. This is more of a, a middle um, verb usage. And, and what it is indicating is this is the same tense that is used in a lot of legal documents. So if you were to read the documents from those days, you would find this same verb tense used in a legal defense. So Jesus is essentially standing up with the prosecution on all the, all the, the legal apparatus, and he is claiming these things. So as you read this, it doesn't say who he's responding to specifically. And John is doing this, he's, he's, he's putting it in such a way that we realize that Jesus is making a legal defense to the Jewish leaders. And so he says, I am God. Verse 18, excuse me, he, he continues and says, My father is still working and I am working also. 18, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So John is recording Jesus' words in a way that has led many commentators to point out that this grammatical structure is Jesus making a legal defense. So I, I just want to get that super clear that what Jesus is doing is he is making a legal defense for himself. He not only defends his work on the Sabbath, but he even escalates the argument by pointing out his authority to do so. 
So he has moved from just, I did this healing, which is good, to now saying he has the same authority that God has. The context seems a bit strange, doesn't it? If you look at this in verse 16... It says, therefore, the Jews, and I remember when John talks about the Jews, he's, he's talking primarily about the Jewish leadership. The Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So this is Jesus' response. And his response seems innocent. If you, most of us, if we read this, we don't see what, what the big deal is. Do you see the big deal here? No, I mean, it doesn't seem like a big deal. He just says, God's working, I'm going to work. That doesn't seem like a big deal to you and me, does it? In fact, he, his, his language even is not that spectacular. He says, my father. And it's not uncommon to refer to God as father in worship. But, con, but in the context, Jesus is doing something unique. He's indicating a special relationship between himself and God the Father. And it seems almost like there's this parable that he is, is applying here. There's almost a story in this. It's, a, it's an apprenticeship. He says, my father is still working and I am working also. If you were living in the day of the Jews, you would recognize that this is the language of an apprentice. So just like if your dad was a carpenter, what would be your profession? Carpentry. Right, And so you would follow your father around and do what he wants. You would be the, the, the go-getter. Just kind of like how we have uh, privates in the military. They have to do whatever the sergeant wants. Right? They are an apprentice in many ways. They are learning how to be a better soldier. And that's what we see here is Jesus is referring to God as his father in a sense, in a special, unique sense. And it seems to be an interesting agreement between Jesus and the rabbi. So Jesus is not saying anything that the Jewish leaders were not teaching at the time. The Jewish leaders absolutely believed that God the Father was working on the Sabbath. When he says it was, he rested, he rested from this creative work of creation, but he didn't rest from upholding the universe. They said that if God were to quit working, the whole world would fall apart. Right? If God stopped and took a break, the world would collapse. Because he is holding all things together. So what Jesus is saying is that he and the Father are similar. So the Jews are not mad that Jesus claims that God is continuing to work. But that he himself is also working because he is God's representative on the earth. Jesus claims as the son, claims himself as the Son of God, which also means his representative which is John 20, 28. John 20, 28, Thomas responds to Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. Permitting Thomas to call him God, Jesus is claiming deity. Jesus is claiming to be God. And verse 18 tells us why the Jews are so upset. It says the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not, because, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling himself, even God, calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. The Jewish leaders here are offended at Jesus because he is making himself equal to God. The Jews immediately understand what Jesus was saying. They understand that his claim 
was not just a general child of God, but a very special and specific claim. And I think the response is completely understandable. If you were a Jew at this time and someone claimed to be God, what do you think your response would be? You would pick up a stone and get ready to to throw it. If a mere human claimed equality with God, we would assume he or she was a lunatic. Jesus' claim would violate the Jewish understanding of monotheism, that there is only one God. It would remind them of the serpent's temptation to be like God in Genesis 3.5. It's also a direct challenge to God the Father, unless it was true. So before we look at exactly what Jesus is claiming... I think we need to do something with this information. I think C.S. Lewis has helpfully explained this framework. He says that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. If Jesus is truly who he claims to be, he has to be one of these. All right, so if you were to come to me and say, I am God, I would think you are three things, either a liar, a crazy person, Or you are who you say you are. So if a mere man says, I am God. So if Jesus is a liar, does that make him a good person? No. So he's already disqualified as a good teacher. If he's a lunatic, does that make him a a good person in the sense of the word? No. So he has to be who he says he is, or he is a crazy person or a liar. So we have to decide what we will do with Jesus. Is Jesus God, and what does that mean for us today? Well, one, if he is God, then we must worship him. In Paul's discussion about Israel in Romans 9, he points out that Christ is God overall. Romans 9, 5, it says, The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ who is God over all, praise forever, amen. So if if you end up meeting with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, you may want to know some of these passages. Romans 9, 5 claims that Jesus Christ is God. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So think about this very carefully. If everything was created by him, is there anything that was created that was not by him? The answer would be no. And then if you would put Christ, is he created? No, because everything is created by him. So the thing that creates everything cannot be created. All right, you guys get this. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is the glue that keeps the universe together. Sounds like God to me. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
What Paul is getting at is that we must worship him. We need to receive him as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king. If Jesus is God, then he must be our Lord. It should be our aim to lovingly obey him, listen to him, and follow him, and believe him. But Jesus not only responds with authority, but he gives a detailed description about exactly what he means. He doesn't make a general claim and say, I am God, or another God, or maybe one among many gods. He makes a very specific detailed claim in verses 19 through 21. So Jesus' claim must be carefully understood. Jesus did not claim to make the, take the place of God or be an alternative to God, which is probably what the Jewish leaders thought he was doing. Uh, and we see that in John 10, The Jews say, we aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. So we know what the Jews were thinking. They're thinking, this this. This guy is a lunatic, or he's a liar, and he's making himself out to be God. Instead, Jesus points out that he is sent by God on a mission. Let's go ahead and look at verse 18, excuse me, 19. Jesus replied, so he's given a response now to their argument against him, saying that he is making himself equal to God. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. Just like a carpenter would not go out and make his own stuff, he would follow his Father's instruction, his Father's blueprint. For the Father, oh sorry, for whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Jesus is pointing out that he is not only God, but he is sent by God. He's on a mission for God and is doing the work that God has assigned for him, which brings glory to God. So he's not displacing God. This is the main thing I want you to notice. He is not displacing God, but he is representing God. John 1.1 captures this. This is another one of those verses you're going to want to know for debating those who deny that Jesus Christ is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a God, was God. And Jesus is giving us details as to what he's doing. In verse 19, when he says, truly, and your, your translation may have amen, amen, uh, there's a repetition Jesus is indicating the importance of what he is saying. If you see this, you know that John wants you to understand that this saying is important for understanding Jesus' mission and his ministry. So when you see something like truly, truly, or amen, amen, what you're seeing is a, a verbal indicator that this is important. If you want to understand Jesus, you need to understand this. And once again, it feels like a courtroom to me. I don't know if you're seeing that in the, in the text, but it feels like Jesus is on trial, at least in the court of public opinion, and he is responding in these ways. Jesus is advocating for himself. He takes the stand and claims to be God, and then goes on to say that he is dependent on God the Father. So this is a, a, maybe a mind puzzle for you, and we're going to get to it. 
But Jesus is claiming utter dependency on God the Father. So we have two aspects of Jesus, and I think the danger is to downplay one or the other. One, we know that Jesus is fully God, yet he's also fully man. 100% God, 100% man. The early Christian creeds explain this for us, but I think sometimes it's better to just say what Scripture says and not try to illustrate it. How many of you have seen some silly illustrations for the Trinity? And they all kind of fall flat. Because the reality is this, is we don't have a comprehension uh, or a, an ability to comprehend this level of complexity because it's so outside of our norm of existence. So we see that God the Son is dependent on God the Father. And Jesus' dependence is explained by four statements. And it's introduced by the Greek word gar. So in 19b... You should see the word for, for whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. So what the Father does, the Son does. God the Father is the model for the Son's activity. Jesus is only doing what God the Father is doing. His job is to imitate or image God perfectly. And Paul takes on the same theme and suggests that crypt. Christians are to copy the model of authentic Christian life in Philippians 3.17, just like Paul copies Christ. Right? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Verse 20, we have another four, F-O-R, four. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. The basis for his dependence is that the Father loves the Son. This is really important. I don't want you to miss it. The love of the Father for the Son is probably one of the most important aspects of Christian theology. This is probably the most important aspect of our faith, and I don't want us to run past it. It says, for the Father loves the Son. And I'm, I'm, I'm so captivated by this truth. I've been meditating on this for this week, and I am uh, overwhelmed by it. So you remember at his baptism, God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? Matthew 3, 17. So what does it mean? Well, it means that in the Trinity, that is the three persons of the Godhead, so we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there is an eternal bond of love being lavished on each other. I know this is a, a concept, or the concept of the Trinity is hard to grasp. I get it. It's kind of like someone who has lived inland their whole life getting to go and see the ocean for the first time. It's mind-boggling. It's hard to understand this because our conception of things is maybe limited. So the reality is this, that there is one God and it manifests himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each of these persons are personal. They have a relationship with the other so these persons communicate, which means that God is not lonely. God is not lonely or lacking a relationship. God is not sitting around waiting to build the earth so that he has friends. Right? He's not waiting for someone to DM him. He is not lonely. All, he has all that he needs within himself. So how could God be love if there was no one for him to love? So this is the, the, 
the difference between Christianity and these other religions. If God is to be love, God is love, if there was no other person in God, if there was no trinity, if there was just a singular entity, a singular being, a singular person, how could he be love? He can't. Right? So what, this is what helps us when we're discussing something with the Muslim. The Muslim God... Allah is said to have 99 names. One of those names is the loving. So the, the Muslim God, Allah, has 99 names. One of them is the loving. How could a God be loving if all he had was himself before all eternity? That's, the, that's a hard thing. So for Islam, the solution is this, that Allah loves his creation, but what does that mean? That means that Allah depends on his own creation. He is dependent on his own creation. In order for, for, for God to be loved, he has to have a creation. And in order for that creation, then he is dependent on that creation. So if that creation wasn't there, God could not be loved. But the Christian God doesn't have that problem, does he? So Allah depends on his own creation, yet one of the fundamental beliefs of Islam is that Allah is dependent on nothing. Do you see the, the problem here? Islam says Allah, God, doesn't depend on anything, but at the same time, his name is love, which means he has to love something, which is creation. So how can God be loved for eternity before anything was created? As Christians, we have an answer. For all eternity, God the Father loves God the Son in the Spirit with perfect, unchanging love. And we get a glimpse of this in John 17, where Jesus is praying to the Father. Uh, John 17, 22 through 26 is just such a powerful passage. I'm going to read it to you and just, just let it wash over you. It says, this is Jesus speaking, he's praying. God the Son is praying to God the Father. Does that make sense? That's why we have a trinity. Otherwise, it would be really weird because he'd be talking to himself. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are, are in me so that they may be made completely one. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the world's foundation. Do you hear that? Jesus is saying that you have loved me, God the Father has loved him, before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, however I have known you, and they, will, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Is that not amazing? Not only does the Father love the Son with eternal, unchanging love, but through Jesus, we can have that love as well. Did you see that? He is the fountainhead of love. We get to participate in the love that the God the Father had with God the Son from eternity past. 
We get to participate in this through Jesus. And if we take this even further, consider Jesus' death on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Honestly, I'm so captivated by this. If you think about this for a minute, God loves the Son in an unchanging way for all eternity, yet we can participate in this. We can have some of this love. Charles Spurgeon once said, There is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. So if we are in union with Christ... That means we are participating with Christ. That means we are believing in Christ, that we have um, become one with Christ. If we are in Christ, that means we are going to experience, we, have to, we, ha- we can experience the same love that God the Father has lavished on God the Son for all eternity. Do you see that? The union with Christ is so important because that means that we are adopted into the family. We have the benefits of the family name. This love is mentioned here. It says that the Father loves the Son. Now, if you are a Greek scholar, if you get nerdy like me sometimes, and you see this word is not agape. This word is not agape here. How many of you have heard that there's all these different types of love in the Greek, and we got agape and phile and, and, all the, and eros and, and all these different ones, right? The word here is not agape. It's phile. John uses them interchangeably. So let's not get caught up too much in the Greek word for love, but let's recognize that John sees this love interchangeably. Verse 20 gives us the ground for Father, for the Father's revealing directly, um, revealing his wishes. It says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. The Father shows is mentioned twice in this passage or in this section. The revealing to the Son, the activity of the Father, shows this inherent love. How many of you, as, as kids growing up, wondered why your parents did certain things? Have you ever questioned that? And sometimes your parents were loving enough to explain to you why they did the thing that they did, right? Especially when it came to spanking times, right? They said, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, right? They're, they're showing me the reason behind it. And as children, we, we sometimes don't understand why this thing is happening. But, we're, but what the Father is doing is indicating this intimate relationship between the Father and Jesus. And this insight leads Jesus to act so that the actions of Jesus are the actions of the Father. Everything that Jesus Christ did is the actions of God the Father. And when Jesus acted, it was God the Father acting through him. But not only that, it says here that there will be greater works. What do you think that's referring to? The resurrection, right. And then we have the third appearance of Gar in verse 21. For, and I think my translation says and, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. God, who is the life giver, according to Jewish theology, is the same as the Son. Jesus has the ability to give life. The miracles are signs to his unique authority as God's special agent, which points forward to this Lazarus guy. Doesn't that make sense why they wanted to kill Lazarus? 
Because God is the only one that can give life. And if Jesus has given someone life, what does that mean? Once again, it also prepares us for the two resurrections that will be discussed in, in verses 28 through 29. And that's, we don't have time to deal with that this morning. So Jesus claims to be God, but not just a type of God or a God, but one with God the Father. So Jesus, loved from before time, is now the sacrifice for a rebellious people, making a way for those in rebellion to be made right and to experience the love of God through Jesus Christ. I wonder, do you have that? Do you have that love? Have you experienced the love of God through Jesus Christ? Are you united to Jesus? Have you been made completely one with Jesus? Not with a a particular church or a particular congregation, but with Jesus Christ himself. Has Jesus' righteousness and sacrificial death been transferred to you? And has your debt of sin been uh, transferred to him? That's really the, the true debt cancellation. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Have you trusted in him? Have you placed your hope in him? And do you seek Jesus as your greatest treasure? That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever, is an unbeliever does not seek Jesus as their greatest treasure. They want to add him into their agenda like we talked about last week. For those who have been united to Jesus, it is common to have doubts. And Satan loves to accuse us, doesn't he? He loves to accuse And I think we also tend to accuse ourselves. We might think things like God could never love us. Or maybe we think things like you have done too many wicked things. You are not a good Christian. Whatever that means. We think, well, I am beyond hope or help. Have you ever thought that? Or am I the only one in here who have ever thought, oh man, I'm too beyond the the love of God. But if you are united to Jesus, you are beloved. You are loved just like God loved Christ. This should motivate us to have have Jesus' joy completed in us, as verse 17, 13 says, that we might be sanctified, that is, to be made more holy, to be made more like Christ by the truth of his word. The truth is this, we become like what we worship, The more you look at Jesus in the Word, the more you will become like Him. Colossians 3.1 for the address. So the truth of this, union with Christ, is a very precious doctrine. This is a Christian doctrine that I think is overlooked often. But union with Christ should silence the devil and his accusations. It should silence our hearts when they rebel against what the Word says. And when Satan opens his mouth to accuse, we shove the sword of the Spirit down his throat. It says, I am unified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There is this no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But Jesus continues his response to the accusers in verses 22 through 23. And that's where we see this final gar, this final four. In verse 22, it says, The Father, in fact, judges no one, 
but has given all judgment to the Son. In fact, is, is, is the four here. So what's the implication for the absolute dependence of the Son on the Father? Evaluation or judgment has been given over to the Son. The Father does not need to judge. We've already seen that the basis for judgment has already been revealed in John 3.18. Let's go ahead and just turn there really quick. John 3.18. It says, Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned or judged, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned or judged, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does not who does for everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Verse 23 gives us the basis of this judgment. So that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Dishonoring the Son is dishonoring the Father. In other words, the Son is the agent of the Father and should be treated accordingly. We could say that hearing and believing which have been shown to components of genuine obedience. Remember that royal official a couple weeks ago. He heard and he obeyed. We could say the same thing, that hearing and believing the sent one is determinative for eternal life. Do you hear the words of Jesus here in this passage? He is claiming to be God, not a God. Will we obey that? Will we live in light of that reality? The harsh reality is this. If you are not in Christ, you are outside of Christ. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. If you think you're of yourself as good or sinless, you're not going to be looking for a Savior. So many people out of pride, I think, will miss Jesus. I think we see that with this passage the Jews, the, in particular the Jewish leaders, they miss Jesus because of the pride that they have in their uh, ability to follow the law, their ability to, to put on a, a, a face, to be hypocritical. And Jesus offended the Jewish leaders because he challenged many of their presuppositions. He attacked their self-righteousness. And instead of them becoming humble and receiving the light of God, they loved darkness more and they rejected Jesus. I think the same option is before us this morning. Here's the question. Is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? If he is who he says he is, and then we are united to him by faith, we have no condemnation, but the love of God is poured out on his Son and overflows to us. We can live holy and upright lives, not because we have to earn favor, but because Jesus Christ has secured that favor for us by his death and resurrection. I want you to think about the love of the Father for the Son this week. Spend some time meditating on this reality. What does it mean that God the Father loves the God the Son 
for all eternity. And that he would willingly give up his son as a sacrifice for someone like you and someone like me. Consider what being united to his son looks like in relation to God's love. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word and just the illuminating experience that your love poured out on your son looks like. Father, as we grapple with this truth, Lord, if there's anyone in this room who has not been united to Jesus Christ by faith, by trust, by hope, that you would transform them, that you would work in their hearts, cause them to to seek after your dear son that is so precious to us. Father, when I face the temptations and the trials of this world, I can have confidence because I am united to Jesus Christ, that I am united to the beloved, and because of that, I also am beloved. Father, this is, this is a reality, a truth that is so powerful that one message cannot even contain. So, Father, I pray that those in this room would not stop thinking about it this morning, but they would go into the world, that they would go out from this place and begin to contemplate what does it mean to be united to Christ? What does it mean to have the love of Christ from the Father poured out on us? Father, we we ask these things, we we beg these things as beggars, in Jesus' precious holy name, amen. Amen.